If you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 31 today. Psalm chapter 31. Before we dive in, I just want to say a quick word of thanks. I, you know, VBS is one of those things. I didn't grow up in a Baptist church, so I, didn't, I wasn't familiar with VBS. Um, and there's something about VBS that's crazy and just exhausting. Um, but there's something... <laughs> But there's also something about VBS that is a unique joy to watch as a pastor watches his people sacrifice themselves for the good of children. There's something so beautiful in that and also something that I know pleases the heart of God. And so in, in your silliness, I keep thinking of Chris Aldrich dancing. That's the, the image that keeps coming to my mind. But just in the silliness, there is something uniquely and profoundly beautiful and glorifying to God offered as a living sacrifice for little ones, but ultimately unto Jesus. So I just I want to say thank you to all the volunteers. And I've got a lot of feedback up here. You guys are working out? Okay, just double checking. All right, for those just joining us, this marks the, the last uh, of our Sunday series, Summer in the Psalms. So... Just as a heads up, starting in August, we're going to do a quick aside, a mini-series on holiness. Mini-series on, I don't know where to stand. <laughs> but uh, we're, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about holiness for a month. But this morning what we're doing is we're coming to Psalm 31. And Psalm 31, for those of you who may have, have read this psalm ahead of time, it, the psalmist almost sounds like he's schizophrenic. He's extolling the glories of God one minute and seems deeply depressed the next. And it will seem foreign to anyone who maybe has never struggled with a deep and dark trial. Struggling to trust God under a burden or a trial that just seems too heavy. And while the exact nature of David, who is the author of this psalm's trial, is not clear there seems to be an intentional vagueness that allows us to quite easily put ourselves in his position and both feel his desperation for God, and hopefully you will also see where his strength truly lies. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but you're going to hear the whole psalm for the most part as, we, as I preach through it. But I'm just going to read verses 23 and 24, which are David's intended takeaway from this psalm. And I'm going to read it, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning amidst many distractions, but Lord, we don't need technology. It's a helpful thing, but we pray, Father, that you would remove the distractions so that we may see the beauty and the glory of your word. Lord, that we would be a people <clears throat> who are reminded, Father, of our strength, but who are also equally cognizant, Lord, of our weakness. And Lord, I just ask as we are walking through this psalm today, that you would glorify your son and that you would edify his people as we, as we learn through your word what it means to be strong in the Lord. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. 
One of the, uh, the most humiliating experiences of my young life <clears throat> happened in middle school, when most humiliating experiences happen. So uh, one of my best friend's dad was the strength and conditioning coach at the University of Tennessee. And so after we would finish up classes, he would, uh, his mom would pick us up and then we would both get transported over to the University of Tennessee and then we would actually get to walk, walk in and work out with UT football players in the afternoon. Great fun, right? Potentially. <clears throat> So aside from being like thoroughly intimidated because I was by far the scrawniest guy in the room, one day I was getting up to do a power clean and I had put weight on each side and because, you know, I had been working out for a few months, I was pretty much pretty impressed with myself and I thought I could lift more than I actually could. So I threw a little more weight on there than I had previously and I, I, I went to stand up and get the weight up and as soon as I got it up, I started to, to topple. And the only thing that stood between me and certain injury was there was this massive linebacker sitting in the kind of right next to me. And he walks over and grabs it with one hand, <laughs> picks it off my shoulders, and drops it on the rack. Now, this guy may have saved my life, but that was one of the most thoroughly humiliating experiences of my young life. Why? Why was that humiliating? Because we are fundamentally embarrassed by our weakness. We hate looking weak. We hate even more feeling weak. Weakness is similar to inadequacy, and no one wants to feel weakness. And so we will do whatever we can to avoid weakness in our lives. And yet... What we see throughout the pages of Scripture, not in just one or two places, but woven throughout, is that the only way, I'm going to say this again, the only way to spiritual strength is the path of weakness. So Paul famously says in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, For when I am weak, how does it finish? then I am strong. But the question I want to ask you this morning is how can that honestly be? It sounds counterintuitive. It's one of those things that sounds almost poetic but ultimately untrue. How can weakness be strength? How can weakness make me strong? And if you've ever wrestled with this reality, this tension you feel about your own weakness and yet a clear call in Scripture to be strong, then you will find Psalm 31 very, very helpful this morning because the purpose of the psalmist, as we've just read in verses 23 and 24, is to encourage every faithful believer to be strong and take courage. It's a call, even a command, to be strong, to strength. And yet... For those of you who may have read the psalm, throughout it, he seems consumed by his own weakness, overwhelmed by his need, by his inadequacy to deal with the trial that is before him. And so this psalm beautifully explains how it is that when I am weak, then I am strong. 
And this is so important for us to grasp this morning because as J.I. Packer says, the way of true spiritual strength leading to true to real fruitfulness in life and service is the humble way of consciously recognized weakness in spiritual things. And so what we have this morning in Psalm 31 is an explication of what that looks like. Or another way to say it is it's the four characteristics of a soul that understands what it means to be strong in the Lord. Four characteristics of the soul that is strong in the Lord. The first characteristic is that they rely on God's strength, not their own. They rely on God's strength, not their own. <clears throat> I had a boss once who uh, <clears throat> would quote one passage of scripture anytime his staff disappointed him. He would say, and Moses leaned on his staff and died. <laughs> it's very inspiring. We don't tend to trust others easily, and the idea of completely relying on another is uncomfortable because we know that they often let us down. That means we are out of control. So we, we, we give up this sense of relying on someone. We, we, we don't do it very easily. In fact, I would say that the only time that you and I will regularly rely on someone else's strength is when we are absolutely forced to do so, when we have no other options. Which is precisely what David's words are communicating in the first four verses of this psalm as his language makes clear that he has come to understand that he is not enough and that only God can deliver him. And so he says, beginning in verse 1, and one thing I want you to do, there's oftentimes when we read a psalm, we don't put ourselves into the psalm. We don't read it as it was intended to be read, as this cry. We, we, we read it in a disconnected, detached way. But I want you to read this as David's cry. And he is not saying this to be merely beautiful, but because he feels this way. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, God, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. You take my feet. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Did you notice kind of that consistent refrain? Remember, like whenever there's repetition in poetry, we want to press in because that's exactly, there's something there that he's wanting to dig out. There's these, all these references to my rock, my refuge, my fortress. We actually sang some great modern worship songs and older ones that come with this same idea that God is our rock and our fortress. But I think the imagery makes me think of David's early life. For those of you who have read the Bible before, you know that in David's early life, before he is king, he's actually on the run. That there is a king, Saul, who is more powerful, more mighty than him. And that any time David was out in the open, and any time he was just kind of out and about, he was ultimately vulnerable because this Saul had more power and he was seeking to kill him because he thought David was a threat to his throne. And so what we would see consistently in the book of 1 Samuel, 
Samuel is that David is running to be able to go to a place where he was strong, where he was secure, and that often meant that he was running into these massive rocks, hiding in them in order to gain strength, in order to gain security, meaning that he knew that if he was on his own, in his own strength, out in the open, he was going to face certain doom and destruction. The only hope that he had was to be able to hide himself in the strength of these rocks. And I think that image stuck in David's mind because often as he's speaking of God later in life, he speaks of him as my rock, my refuge, my fortress, which would not have been mere poetic language for David. He would have thought back to a period in his life when that was the only thing that kept him, that saved him. And so to speak of God as my rock and my fortress is really a statement of total dependence and complete reliance, made even more clear by the pleas to rescue me speedily and to keep me from being put to shame and and to lead me and guide me. In other words, David's opening cry is shot through with recognition of his weakness, of his need, of his inadequacy, and subsequently, God's strength. God's power, God's sufficiency. He has no hope that his strength will be enough, and so he entrusts himself entirely to the strength and the goodness of God, which is why he finishes kind of this opening salvo, this opening cry to God with verse 5, which reads, Into your hand I commit my spirits. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. These are beautiful words because what he's doing is he's saying that thing that's at the center of me, my spirit, the part that no one else needs, the part that is essential to my life, I am taking it, Lord, and I am entrusting it entirely to you because I know that I do not control what happens. And I'm, so I'm entrusting myself. I'm placing this, that which is most precious to me, in your hands. And you may recognize these words in another place as well if you've read the New Testament because these words are actually the last words of Jesus on the cross. In his dying breath, he utters these words as he gives up his spirit, as he finally relinquishes the last small bit of control that he has and he entrusts himself fully to the goodness and the power of God trusting that he would raise him again. And I think we need to see that in that cry of Jesus on the cross is really the perfection. So David might have wanted to say, I, into your hands I commit my spirit, but, but he was not going to be able to do that to its fullest, to its fullest extent. But in Jesus' cry, he perfected that as he was the, the final and perfect example of the one who into your hands commits my spirit of fully entrusting himself to God. And I want to say this morning that all genuine strength in the Christian life comes from that same place, a complete reliance and dependence manifesting itself in commitment of ourselves to the one who is mighty to save. Your strength this morning is not in your hand but in recognizing your inability in committing yourself fully to him. 
And I just can't emphasize enough how much this posture is central to the Christian life. The growing recognition of your inability in your spiritual life. You could say that the Christian life doesn't really begin until we recognize that we are inadequate, right? Like, I know that the Christians struggle with pride. I've been around enough Christians to know that, okay? But we, of all people, should be the most humble because Christianity at its root is a recognition, I am not enough. I can, I'm trying a thousand different ways to tell myself I'm enough my entire life, but the reason I feel like I'm not enough is because I am not enough on my own. That ultimately I stand condemned by a righteous God. I am ultimately not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not what I'm meant to be. I am inadequate. That's where the Christian life starts. Recognition of that and then further the reliance that even though I am weak, even though I am sinful, even though I'm unworthy, he will be my strength. That he is trustworthy. That he is righteous. And if that's the way the Christian life starts, I guarantee you some of you have bought the lie that somehow we're supposed to depart from that path as we continue to walk the Christian life. That we're actually supposed to grow beyond that. But the reality is, church, that we don't grow beyond that. We only grow deeper into that recognition and that realization that we are not enough. And the only way we can continue to move forward is to stop trusting in our supposed strength and to learn to reach out in all things to the strong one. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, church, some have the mistaken idea that Christianity is about being strong enough He's going to save you from your sins, but then you're going to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps until you get to heaven. But I just want to say to you, if you are wrestling under that burden, come and let him be your strength. Some of you are carrying burdens that demand more than you have, and you know it. Come and let him be your strength. Which sounds good, but the question we have to ask is, what does that look like? What does it look like to let God be your strength? And that brings us to point number two. The second characteristic of what it means to be strong in God is those who are strong in God lay their burdens before the Lord, before God. They lay their burdens before God. Now I'm exhausted already. But what comes next is really the heart of this psalm. Because of its construction, we know that this, what's about to follow, verses 9 through 13, is really the heart of the psalm. From a place of crying out to God in weakness, then momentary joy and confidence in his future deliverance, David now plummets headlong into the reality of his soul's despair. He gives full vent to the internal pain and misery he is currently experiencing. Now, what I want to do before I read this is just remind you. Some of you may read this and be like, that's never happened to me. David is not necessarily giving you a literal explanation of everything he's having to you. That in poetry, what he's doing is he is telling you how it has made him feel. He is expressing what he feels like in the moment so that you can understand the depths of his despair. And again, read these not as like pretty church words in a pretty church service. 
but the cry of someone in agony. Verse 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become approach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. What an honest and wholehearted expression of anguish. He says, my eye is wasted from grief. It's like he's saying, my eyes have just, there are no more tears left, I'm empty. From my insides, my soul, to my outside, my body, he says, I am wasting away because of grief. And this isn't just a momentary grief, a momentary section. He's saying, I have been dealing with this for what seems like forever. He says, my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. His grieving has worn him out within and without. Why? Well, because he says, my adversaries have have made him look like the fool so that he feels that everyone has turned their back on him. He feels alone. He feels forgotten, like everyone is against him. Now, you may be hearing this and go, I never experienced that. Some of you may hear that and be like, I know exactly what that feels like. But even if you've never experienced that, I will promise you this, every one of you has had a taste of that. Every one of you in this room has tasted something, maybe even a small bit, but something of that sort of pain and that sort of distress. We've all had our own brush with something similar, and the question we have to ask is, where do we go with that pain? Let me ask you this morning, where do you go with that pain? When you are dealing with disappointments, struggles, trials, failures, where do you go with your pain? You see, David didn't hold back. He poured out his heart to God and expressed himself in fullness. And again, don't let the fact that this was written to be a song miss you, help make you miss its genuine and real pain. This is what is called a lament. And the Psalms are full of it. This is certainly not the only place where David does what he's doing here, where the psalmist pours out his heart in bitterness before the Lord. And I think it's hard for us sometimes today in our happy-go-lucky church services where everybody's smiling and everybody's okay for us to be able to see that this is actually holy and right and good. It can seem like it's unworthy, unnecessary, unproper to express all this to God, but it is actually honoring him when you take your burdens and you lay them before the God alone who can bear them, who can do something about it. It's taking the ugly, embarrassing truth of your weakness, of what you're struggling with, and laying it out in the open before the only one who truly sees and truly knows. And I want to just encourage you this morning, if you've never or addressed spoken to God in this way, and I don't mean in the poetic language, 
but poured out your heart before the Lord. Express to him the depths of your despair, given him over your burdens, cried out to him in anguish, poured out your heart. Then I want to commend this to you for several reasons, and then I'm going to give you a brief word of instruction and in how to do it. First, I want you to do it because by putting this in a psalm, God is com explicitly commanding God's people to do this. This is okay. You're supposed to do this. Second, because it will deepen your love, your trust, and your relationship with God. It will turn prayer from a duty into a delight. And I want to say this one more thing too. The one you confide in when you are struggling is the one that you trust in and you rely on. If you've got that one friend, it's good to have friends to be able to talk to, and a good, it's good to be able to have friends to express to, but the one that you confide in is the one that you rely on. And God wants you to trust in him and rely on him. And thirdly, because your soul needs it. I know because I'll be in pastoral counseling and talking with someone, and I'll, I'll talk and I'll get to a point where something is said, hopefully not by me to offend him, although that has happened. Um, but when there's this moment of recognition and they recognize that they can be real and the tears start flowing. Guys, so many people at our church are carrying around burdens that they are barely holding it together with. Many. And that's not a call or a command to do anything about it specifically, but if you're one of those people, your first course of action should be to go before the Lord and to pour out your heart before him regularly. Because that's not weakness, my friend, that's strength. So stop withholding what God already knows about you. And I do want to give you one piece of advice on how to do it. Everybody's different. But for me, I like to write it down. So I like to pour out my heart to God in written form in that. And I just want to encourage you, find whatever way works for you, but go before the Lord and lay your burdens before him, okay? And that brings us to the question next, is if you're supposed to, Pray, pray, you're supposed to cry, you're supposed to write it out, whatever it is. The next thing I need to say is that you don't need to stop there, though. This isn't just emotional therapy, so you can get it out and, and that's it. Bring it before the Lord. Be real and lay it before Him. But the third thing that makes us a, a soul that is strong in the Lord does is they learn to wait on the Lord. To wait on the Lord. So David next, after fully unburdening himself before the Lord, now returns to what he knows to be true. You see, it is good to be able to express your emotions, but it's even better to be reminded that what you feel in the moment is not reality. So David responds in verse 14. Again, after pouring out his heart, and I think I want to make an important distinction. Sometimes we want to jump to this before doing the lamenting. Lament, express. 
that's not unworthy of God, give it to him, and then remind yourself of the truth as David does here. In verse 14, but I trust. Remember, he's just said, tear on every side, schemes, everyone's against me, I'm in despair, I'm alone, God, who do I turn to? And then in verse 14, he says this, but I trust you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servants. Save me in your steadfast love for me. And I'm applying that's, that's an, an application, those last two words. Don't miss how significant that but is at the beginning here. You can't stop at the limit. You've got to make it to the but. Because what's happening in verse 14 is a major shift. Lord, this is how I feel. Oh, but I know it's not the reality. I know that you are my God. The CSB says the course of my life is in your hand, which I like better than my times are in your hands. It's a statement of recognition that you are in absolute control. He's saying, I recognize that reality and I peacefully surrender to you what you have, to what you have for me because I have no hope or chance apart from you. So yes, Lord, this is how I feel, but I know the only source of peace in that turmoil is to lift my eyes to you. This is what the storm looks like. This is what the storm feels like, but I will fix my eyes on you who rules over the storm. And then he continues in verse 17, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be out, be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak so insolently against the righteousness and pride in righteousness and pride and contempt. See, he finally gets to this cry for justice, for God to intervene. For God to rescue and to punish the evil one who speaks against the righteous and pride and contempt. But the truth is, based on the construction of this psalm, it's pretty clear it hasn't happened yet. It's something that the psalmist must wait on. He knows God has all power. He entrusts himself to him. But his strength comes from not fretting. Not trying to move God along. Because guess what? If you trust God... If he's got you, if you are, have unburdened yourself before him and you are entirely in your hand, then your rest, then your next response is to wait on the Lord. Now, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Waiting on the Lord is a posture of restful dependence as we look away from ourselves and completely to him. And you're saying, God... I'm in the middle of this. I don't know what you're doing, but I rest and I trust in you that you will deal with it in your time. That's what trusting the Lord looks like in the middle of a storm, waiting on him. And I just want to say, as if this was not clear, this is hard. You could say impossible, apart from God. When you're in physical pain, as some of you in this congregation are, this is hard. When we're lonely and we just long for deeper relationships with people, this is hard. 
when we're struggling, when we grow impatient, when we're dealing with a particular whatever trial it is, we want to control the situation so that we can guarantee the outcome. But he is calling us here to the steady habit of looking to God, of continually refocusing our gaze on him because he alone is our hope. And it is the way God's people have always been strong. We walk with a confidence, a steadfast hope, a forward-leaning trust in God's goodness and timing. And one of like probably the most popular Christian verses, that's probably a thousand coffee cups with eagles, goes something like this. Isaiah 40, 31, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But you need to realize that the feeling that someone who's waiting for the Lord is not that they are soaring like an eagle, but that they are trudging through the depths of despond. That they are walking through the middle of a slough, through a, a slough, through a swamp. And yet to look to the Lord as our strength and wait on him is the path of strength for God's people. And that brings us to the fourth characteristic of a soul that finds its strength in God. That they rejoice now in God's goodness. That they rejoice now in God's goodness. You see, if all that I've said is true, then despite the reality of your circumstances, people of God, you can rejoice. This confidence in God's future deliverance because of his goodness gives reason to rejoice now. Not even, yes, you're going to rejoice in one day in the future when whatever is troubling you is dealt with by the Lord, but that may not be in this life. And the reality is saying, you have strength to rejoice now. In verse 19, the psalmist says, and remember, I believe David's writing this at one sitting. So he's gone from the despondency, the desperation, to the trust. And then in verse 19, oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. I don't know if you missed it, but there, this is a wonderful thought. David speaks of God as storing up goodness for those who fear him, for those who wait on him, who take refuge in him. You see, they may be in the midst of a season where the goodness of God is not clear, where they feel like God is anything but good, but he knows that this is only a temporary thing, so he rejoices in the spiritual reality of God's complete and total goodness. And despite his present reality, he rejoices in that spiritual truth and that future coming goodness. And then in verse 20, he says, In the cover of your presence, you hide, me, hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Church, this is the confidence that every believer in Jesus Christ has 
that despite our circumstances, there is reason for rejoicing. We might feel for a time that we are cut off from his sight, but we know that he never loses sight of his children. And so we can rejoice in God because we know that he is working good even in evil. So Paul writes in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, how many things work together for good? All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I want to make this clarification. Your good does not necessarily mean your deliverance from whatever you're dealing with right now in the moment. It doesn't necessarily mean you getting what you want and you're praying for. It doesn't necessarily mean it's all going to work out for you right now. What it does mean is that one day you will see the abundant goodness of God poured out on you in a way that you could not possibly have understood. And you will see the good that God is working clearly in hindsight through the trial that you're now wanting to be delivered from. See, some of you are in a period of time where God is storing something up and you haven't received it yet or you're not feeling it yet. You're not, it's not a reality to you yet. But I just want to encourage you that the never-ending, steadfast love of the Lord for his redeemed people will not fail. And so a soul that is strong in the Lord learns to rejoice now and what God will do in the future. And so our joy in what God will do is not antithetical to our suffering. And as I said last week, our joy is not optional because the strength of the Christian life, our energy, our power comes from a heart that is filled with thankfulness to God, not primarily for what God has done for us on this earth, but because of what God will do for all of us in the life to come. And we see the fulfillment of God to do his, this good in the cross. And so in other words, let me say it this way. We can know that he is committed to this because he has absolutely already poured out all his wrath. He has already poured out all his anger. He has already poured out and Christ has drunk to the very depths every last drop of the anger and the judgment of God so that you and I can drink the cup of his love and his blessings and his goodness. So if we want to know, is God committing to do us good? Is he good? We look to the cross because in the cross we see the perfection and the perfect picture of his commitment to do us good. On the cross, God forever shows his zeal to do good to those who have recognized their weakness and their inability to overcome their sin and have overlooked and have looked to him to save them. But I do want to mention one thing before we close. Because though this ends with blessing, there is one word of warning. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. And now when you hear that word acts in pride, there's many things you could think of, but I want you to think of one thing. Anyone who is in here today is in the room and you think that you will stand before the Lord on your righteousness, your strength, your merits, your goodness, your anything having to do with you or from you, 
you need to understand that you are right now under the wrath of God. And that the only thing that can remove you from the wrath of God is that you would repent of this arrogance and repent of your sin and that you would look to the one who is freely offering mercy and grace for all who will come. And if you'd like to know what that means and what that looks like, I'd love to talk with you after the service. Because everyone will one day stand before the Lord, even in the strength and righteousness of Christ or in their own strength. And there is only one group that will make out in God's goodness and blessing. And so now hopefully it is clear why recognized weakness is the one and only path to spiritual strength. And you can see why David in all his weakness and need and dependency can finish his psalm with a call to all God's people to be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Because people of God, though you are weak, that's okay. And better you realize it and recognize it now so that you may walk in the strength of the Lord and of his might. So be strong in his grace, in his sufficiency, and learn the soul's secret of strength for God's people, which is daily dependence upon him in recognition of your weakness. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are strong, we are weak. You are good, we are sinful, Lord. We don't come to you trying to prove ourselves to you. We come, Lord, desperate that you would both reveal to us our sin, reveal to us our need, so that we may walk in your strength, so that we may walk in your goodness. Lord, we don't need you for just a part of the Christian life. We need it for all of the Christian life. And so we look to you now. We pray that you would grow us as a people with a posture of dependence, that we may know what it means to be strong in the Lord. Amen.